Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you out. It's good to have uh, members and visitors alike. If you are visiting with us, we're just so glad that you're here. And we ask that you stick around for a few moments afterward, uh, just so that we might get to know you a little bit better and be able to talk with you and uh, just be able to say hello before you leave tonight. If you want to go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to be focusing on this passage tonight as we continue in looking at just a, a few qualities and qualifications as I think uh, both words, uh, both terms are, are useful and very applicable when it comes to the eldership and what it means to be an elder and what is required of an, a man to become an elder as God uh, puts this standard down for us. We've looked at a few different aspects of these qualities. We first started by looking at a man's character. Does he have a specific character that would therefore make him capable of being able to lead as an elder, as a shepherd? We also looked at a man's reputation, what it should be and what it should not be. And tonight we're just going to continue by looking, obviously, at an elder's experience. Now, there was a lot that I had initially put into this lesson, but I cut some things out. And I'm sure that you all will be happy that I did that because there, there, there was just so much. And I didn't want to have to rush through anything. And uh, ultimately, I also didn't want to make sure that this was just a very, very lengthy sermon. So um, we're just going to be focusing on this first part of an elder's experience, mainly when it comes to his family, the domestic credentials. Next, we're going to look at his experience as just a mature Christian, that he's not supposed to be a novice, that he's supposed to be apt to teach. And I do think there's just so much to talk about within just those two qualities. But looking at the domestic credentials of a man to, that have to be in place before he can lead as an elder, before God says he's capable of leading as an elder, to fully understand these qualities, we, we must not just see the surface applications, but also what the point that God intended for these men to apply to themselves is. And, and, and the reason I say that is because I think a lot of times when we look at particularly his wife and his kids, how he leads, we, we get very sidetracked with, with certain debatable questions. And I will just say, we are going to talk about those questions tonight. And I can promise you that I'm not going to end, you know, years and years and years of debates on a couple of these passages. But I do think that as we look through these uh, passages and we look at these arguments, I do think that these are arguments that, that, that need to be carefully considered before uh, moving forward with anything. And so, first of all, as we look at what an elder's experience needs to be in the home, I just want to start by saying or asking the question, what is the measurement? When it comes to how a man can lead, when you ask the world that question, I think too many times we forget what, what the qualifications actually are when it comes to what leadership should look like and what it should be and what it should consist of. What kind of experience are we talking about here? Because if you ask from a worldly mindset, if you ask even some brethren, they might start focusing on a few things like how their success in business or their success with a company that they own, a company that they started. They may look at their financial stability or their financial achievements. And you could just, the list could go on and on and on. But is that what we're talking about when it comes to the kind of experience that God says a man needs to have to be able to lead, to be actually be equipped to lead before he becomes an elder? And I would just say, why, why are these things not a factor? Why can they not be a factor? Well, for one thing, and this is just very obvious, I know this is just going to blow your mind as I say this, why is it not a factor that a man be successful in his business? Because the church is not a business. 
And it's never, ever illustrated in such a way throughout the gospel. And so, therefore, if the church is not a business, that's not going to be the qualification of a man, that he does well in his business. And there are other things that we could talk about. But, you know, you, you look at a man who is a millionaire, but he got there through dishonest means. And we even kind of talked about that not too long ago of, of people that, uh, that have, are fond of sordid gain. That's not the man that can be an elder. I mean, he's successful in his business, maybe. He's successful financially, but is he qualified? Not at all. Or you have a man that is successful in his business, but, but he hurts his employees to get there, to do so. Is that man qualified? Well, again, he's successful, but only through worldly means and only through a worldly lens. And so he's not qualified to lead the way God expects him to. How, what is it that God uses as the standard, as the measurement to say, this man has the experience needed to lead my church? And obviously, as we've already indicated, it's the domestic credentials. It is how he has led his family. And, and I think that this is amazing that God uses this as the, the family unit as a whole, not just one aspect of it, but as a whole. To, to show whether one is experienced enough, is qualified to serve as a shepherd. And so the question is not how has he led his company, but the question is how has he led his family, as you see on the screen before you. Because you can really do well in a business and yet not have any of the qualities of a shepherd. Because you, you could ask somebody if they're a manager or if they're a boss somewhere or if they have people under them, but if you ask somebody if they're a shepherd, that has an entirely different connotation. He leads in a far different way. And so, whereas you, you might have someone from a worldly perspective looking at a business saying, yeah, they lead in a very cutthroat way. Well, that's not what we wanted a shepherd. You can be, on the other hand, a lowly worker with very humble beginnings and yet be even more qualified than the man who's successful by worldly means. And it all comes down to how has he led his family. Now, again, we're going to look at an, uh, the other side of this, not just the, the family, but we're going to look at is, is, uh, is he knowledgeable in the scriptures? Is he a mature Christian? But we start with this. And so God says that it is a man's domestic credentials that prove him or disqualify him in terms of his leadership. And so I just want to focus now on those qualities in the credentials that God gives. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, it says, An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil? And we'll just stop there. I know verse 7 goes on, but we already kind of talked about having a good reputation. But we're going to break this down into three different aspects. We start first with the man. We'll look at the man's wife, and then we'll look at his children. But just from the beginning, it, what is very clear and very plain, just reading through at a very base level, is when you talk about the man who is going to be qualified to lead, it talks about him being the husband of one wife. Now, there's a couple things to take from this. One, if he has a husband, does that mean he can be a woman? No. There are some denominational folks that would say that that's the case, but that is clearly not the case. In, both for the elders and for the deacons, this is a man. This is a husband of one wife. And in fact, he does specify the fact that this is a man, a husband of one wife. And some translations, I think, have even put it as a one-woman man. And so, obviously, when you look at this, I, I think this is pretty clear. And I think that there's even some pretty clear applications just from from the very beginning, uh, you, we're going to delve deeper into this, but just from the beginning, as you look at this, as it says, a husband of one wife, 
Obviously, this means that a man can't be polygamous. Obviously, this means that a man just can't, you know, he just can't be a bachelor. He can't be someone who is single, and then you put into this position, and, of course, he's going to learn how to do that. Now, we all know this. And so I don't really want to focus on that too much because I think this much is clear. He's a man. He's to be a husband of one wife. But what is the point of these qualifications? These are some questions that come up from time to time as we talk about these qualifications. Is this only teaching against polygamy? Or some people have even come up with scenarios of, you know, is the point that he can't be a widower. So you have a man who was an elder and then his wife dies and then later on in his life, and it was, a, it was a scriptural marriage, she dies. And obviously there's nothing that he can do about that. But later on he finds another woman and he's scripturally married to her and she's a good Christian woman. And now the question comes, well, he already was married once. Who, who is his wife now? Because he's been scripturally married. She's dead. And really what they're doing is they kind of make it sound like what the Sadducees do with Jesus. They come up with this insane scenario. And, and let me just say, I'm not saying these questions are completely bogus and, and dishonest. I think that we can have the conversation, but I think we very quickly lose sight of what the points of these qualities are and why God put this down. It is not just to prove, uh, uh, make a case against polygamy. I think you can use this passage to talk, uh, to make the case against polygamy, but that's not the main point of this passage, is it? There's more that God is trying to tell us here. It's not just that he, 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 And and this is what really gets me. We focus so much on something like this. And again, I'm not saying that there's no time to be spent on this. But we focus so much on this and we forget about the state of the man's marriage. Let me just ask, is the point of this that he just be married, but we don't even think about what kind of husband he is? Is the point that he just have kids, but we're not going to be worried about how they turn out? Is that... Is that really the point that we're making? No. Again, we can talk about these questions, but I really don't want to give too much time to this because I want to focus on the point that God is making here. And that is, what kind of husband and father is he? And there's just a few passages here that you can look at when you, when you see what kind of husband and father God wants his people to be. Over in Ephesians chapter 5, first of all, in Ephesians chapter 5, Can this be said about the man that we are thinking uh, about becoming an elder? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Why might that be important? (laughs) Because he's going to be talking to individuals and trying to help individuals within the congregation with their marriages. And if this man is not resembling Christ as a husband, he has no business doing so. And frankly, that's not an example that you really want to follow, is it? And so he has to have this kind of thing down. And it it could be said uh, uh, with the kids as well. But before we get there, over in Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13 in verse 4, it says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Now, these two passages that we just looked at, neither one of them are, are really talking about elders specifically. But what is this showing us? These are men that are not still working through some serious issues that they have leading as husbands. These are men that have done a good job of, be, of being a good example of what a husband is supposed to look like. These are men who have done a good job and have already established that example as a good father. 
They're not still working on this. And in fact, I would say that this kind of helps us when it comes to how old do children need to be and, and, and when we get to that conversation. Again, we'll talk more about that. But, but I think that these little details help in the long run. This is something that's already set in place. And so if it's, if it's something that's set in place, I, I, it, I just wonder if that helps us when it comes to the question of, well, how old do they have to be? Do, do, the, do the children have to be out of the house? Are they still in the house? And I think that these questions will help us understand how to better answer those questions because we're not focused on really things that don't really have to do with the point God is making with these qualifications. And so the point is deeper than the service surface. It is how has he led his family? Is he leading as a man who is scaring his wife into submission by tyranny and abuse? Is he a man that is unscripturally married or divorced? Well, that man is not the man that God says is qualified. He's not capable of leading. This is a man who produces children who respect and obey him, not children who who want to do anything but obey him, not children that are in constant rebellion and constant disobedience. A man who truly, as it says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, leads his children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so th this is what we really need to focus on. Now, with all that being said as a precursor, now we're going to get into the, the, these other aspects of his wife and his children. And this point won't be as long when it comes to his wife because really there's only one verse where it talks about wives. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 again in verse 11, it says, Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now, I know that there's maybe some, some conversation uh, every now and then about whether or not this is just talking about deacons' wives or, or if it's just, if it's just a, a completely different office. It's pretty clear from the New Testament there's no such thing as a, the office of a deaconess. In fact, there's, there's a lot to be said about the translation there. It's one of those moments where that word wasn't translated, it was transliterated. It's kind of like the word baptize. The, the Greek word was baptizo, and instead of using immersion, which would make a lot more sense because that's what we're talking about. They decided to bring it in as baptize. Now we can still know what that means, but but it comes it comes down to the same kind of uh, 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 hermeneutics when we look at this verse in First Timothy chapter three and verse eleven. It's not talking about a separate office. It's talking about the kind of wives that that men who are going to be elders and men who are going to be deacons need to have to fully. Uh, to fully work in that role in that position within the church and we can t that's not really the point that I want to be getting into tonight I just wanted to briefly mention it if you have any more questions you talk to me about that afterwards but I think very clearly this is speaking about the kind of wives that these men need to have and this is the kind of woman whose behavior and interaction with her husband further proves that he is the kind of man who can easily be subjected to and trusted in the leadership now, I'm not saying that if there's, a, if there's a, a situation where a woman just does not care about her husband at all and just is completely disrespectful, that automatically means he's a terrible husband. That's not what I'm saying. But if you have a woman who, who is very submissive and very, very clearly helping in, in his work as a Christian, I think that says a lot about the kind of husband, the kind of leadership that he shows. Again, maybe not necessarily in every single case. There may be some outlying case, but most of the time it does just further prove the, the kind of demeanor and the kind of respectable nature of the man that uh, might be able to lead as an elder. And there are several things that he mentions here. He, he 
says the word dignified. And, and frankly, I think one of the best ways to, and your translations may have it this way, but one of the best ways to communicate what this means is a woman who is respectable. This is not a woman who is going to be loud or abrasive all of the time. And she's not vindictive either. Why might that be important? Because if you have a woman who's the wife of an elder who is going to be privy to a lot of information, if she gets slighted in any way, well, she has some, you know, she has some, some ammo to use whenever she feels vindictive or angry. And so she's respectable. She's dignified. She's a modest woman. She's not acting like the rest of the world. Some of these other words I think are, are pretty clear. You don't have to get into a lot of uh, uh, a conversation about what a gossip is. But she's not a gossip. And, and I would just say very quickly, just like what we were talking about with being dignified, it's important that a woman have a controlled tongue if she is going to have a husband that's going to lead in such a way. Because again, if she becomes privy to a lot of information, do you really want a woman who doesn't know how to control her tongue to be given access to all of that? And what that sounds like is, you know, you, I probably shouldn't say this, but, and then we just go right on with telling everybody what, what the, you know, sweet tea is. And, and frankly, I, I think we can understand that pretty clearly. This is, this is someone who just very simply is slanderous. Someone who does not care about the damage they do with that knowledge, and they're just spreading it. That's not the kind of woman that qualifies a man to be an elder, or even frankly a deacon. It's a woman that can be trusted with that kind of information. A woman who is temperate, and, and again, very clearly, it's someone who's self-control, not dominated by worldly influences. It's very clear what she is dominated by, and that is by the scriptures. That is by a life of purity and holiness. Someone who just aids the work of, of her husband, who is supposed to be doing the exact same thing, living a life of holiness and purity and trying to spread that even further. But looking at that last bit of the verse there, she is faithful in all things. I think that that is a very striking word to use because, again, we know what that means. It's, it's talking about submissiveness. It's talking about loyalty and allegiance. It's, it speaks of a dependability and a reliability. And if you think about a, a great help to a man that's going to be working in such a way in the kingdom, this is important to have for a wife. And why is that? Because he's going to encounter a lot of criticism himself. And he is going to encounter a lot of difficulties and hardships. I'm not trying to make it sound like it's a terrible work and, and you know, just an incredibly difficult work that nobody would want. But there are difficulties that come with it. And so he is going to need a wife that is faithful in all things, faithful to God first and faithful to him. Because in those moments, he doesn't need someone who's going to be, you know, just off the board, you know, unreliable and just, all right, let's, let's strike it. Let's just go for the jugular. No, he needs, he needs a wife that is going to be temperate, self-controlled, not slanderous, submissive, dependable, and able to be a support to lean on. So all of these things, I think, matter. Now, in Titus chapter 2, if you go there very quickly, I think this sums it up very well. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 3, Titus chapter 2 in verse 3 at the beginning, it says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now, I know that this is not 
just talking about elders or elders' wives. In fact, you look at all throughout this, the beginning of chapter 2, and it's talking about just different people. Older men, younger men. Older women, younger women. But I think that this is absolutely applicable to what kind of woman needs to be the wife of a man who's going to lead, who's going to be an elder or a deacon. Can she be pointed to as an example to follow for other women in the church? Is she someone who is faithful to her husband? Or is she a woman who just very clearly despises him? You know, there was a story of a man who was an elder at a congregation, and there was another preacher coming in for a gospel meeting. They were just talking about things, and, and this woman, she was, she was running for a political office, and it was an interesting conversation, but the, the elder, the husband of that woman, made it very clear, I, I, she is running for some kind of political uh, office, but I really don't want her to. I'm not happy about that. And so the preacher heard that, and that just kind of, you know, that it's, it's something just didn't connect there. There was something wrong with that. And so he asked about that with both of them at the table, and they were just talking through some things. And it came out that the wife said to the preacher, well, I didn't want him to be an elder, but he became one. And frankly, if that's the case, I don't think the man's qualified to be an elder. If even his own wife is, and maybe it could be that it's her fault. It may be just an attitude problem on her part. Either way, though, I think it disqualifies the man. Because you, you have someone who is really not faithful in all things. And you have someone, or rather, you have someone who, whose own spouse, whose own wife is saying he can't lead in that capacity. And so regardless of the situation, I, I think it, it becomes very clear. He needs this kind of woman to be able to help him lead in that capacity and to be able to be a support for him when those moments come that are more difficult and, and maybe just more painful. And so she needs to be an example who has all these things in place. She's not going to be someone, sometimes it's said, of, uh, it's kind of said in, as a joke, maybe on social media or otherwise, people say, well, I don't keep my home, my home keeps me. I'm not really sure that that's the kind of woman that is going to be qualifying her husband. Because this is a woman that is self-controlled. This is a woman that is dignified. And if she is, if she's able to keep the home and she's able to do her, do her work, this beautiful work that God has given her, then God says that she is going to be a help and going to be the kind of woman that, that gives a husband the experience to lead. And so we need to be careful about making sure we don't just overlook this, this qualification because I absolutely do think this is a big part of the qualifications of a man, that his wife be all of these things. But as I said, I really want to spend most of our time looking at a man's children because I think that this is where most of the questions come. And I would just start with one of the main questions that come up, and that is when it speaks of children, is it talking about one or more? Very quickly. The question that we have to answer as we really approach any question in Scripture, or any discussion of Scripture, is what has the Scriptures taught? What is bound by Scripture? And so I just want to look at this word and see how it's used. First of all, if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 21 very quickly. Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21 and verse 7. You're familiar with this part of Scripture because this is where Isaac is, is born and speaks of... Um, Really kind of a beautiful birth, a miraculous birth. In Genesis chapter 21 and verse 7, I keep flipping the pages too far. But in verse 7, as Sarah is praising God for what he has done for her because she was barren, he's blessed her with a son. She said, it says that she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse 
children. Yet I have been born him a son in his old age. The word children and son are the exact same words uh, in, in, in the Hebrew. And so, uh, or, or, or rather in the, in, in the Greek, the, in the Septuagint, which is just the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the exact same word. And so you have the word being used for both children and son. I've heard it said this way. Uh, in fact, this was actually asked to me not too long ago as this question was asked uh, in a room full of preachers. One guy who knows me really well and I'm really good friends with, he looked at me and said in front of everybody, Luke, do you have children? I kind of sat there and was like, yeah, I do. I have Hawk. And, and frankly, I do think that that's, I, I think that that's kind of a, a powerful point I, it's kind of hard for me to buck against that because, frankly, the word is used in this way, not just in our current vernacular. It's used this way in the scriptures, not only in Genesis chapter 21, but in Matthew chapter 22 very quickly. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 24. <clears throat> it says... And this is one of the stories that we were alluding to earlier, talking about the Sadducees who come to question Jesus. It says that they were asking Jesus, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. And then you could just go continue on through that story. It's kind of a, uh, an insane scenario, as we already indicated earlier. But that word children there is the same word that we were just talking about, that techna word. And it, it, even quoting Deuteronomy chapter 25, it's the exact same word used for children. Now, once more, I would just say, when he says, if a man ha dies having no children, is he talking about children plural or children singular? I think it can be used interchangeably. Obviously, it can be used interchangeably. Now, let me just say, with all that being said, I'm talking about what we can bind with Scripture. What has Scripture bound? I'm not talking about what my personal preference is here. I can only speak as the Bible has spoken. Now, can I bind this on myself? 100%, absolutely. And in fact, I think there's a lot of wisdom in being cautious about things like this. But can I bind this on others? I don't think I can. We, I don't think that we can draw a line of fellowship when we don't have very clear examples where God has, has, has made that indication very clear. And, and I would just say, I don't think the Holy Spirit has trouble being clear when it comes to teaching us or instructing us. I don't think the Holy Spirit is really ever vague. He is very simple in his language, and it's very easy for us to understand. So I don't think that this is a portion where the Holy Spirit had a hard time communicating to us. I just, we need to make sure that when we approach these kinds of conversations and questions, that we come to it saying, what has God bound? And, and really, I I want to end this, all of this by saying, first of all, remember that I said, <laughs> after everything, we need to approach this with caution. I, I am the kind of person that errs on the side of caution. I would rather not act on any presumption whatsoever. Now, with that being said, what is the point? What is the point of this commandment that God gives in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 4 through 5 and in Titus chapter 1 in verse 6? The point is not about the number of children that he has, but it is the experience in being a good scriptural father. Does he have that kind of experience? That's the point. And so once more, we go through all that just to say, this is what God is trying to indicate. This is what God is trying to teach us about the kind of man who will be qualified and will be experienced enough to lead the church. Now, 
Let's look at it this way. Back over in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in verses 4 and 5. Once more, in verse 4 it says, He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? I think this is a very helpful passage because what you have is Paul kind of, the way this is broken up in, in, in the verses, in the form of the verses, it's very clear. Here you start in verse 4 with the qualification. And Paul begins by saying, this is the kind of man that we need. Now, the question is, why? What is the purpose? And the purpose is given in the very next verse, in verse 5. How will he take care of the church of God if he does not know how to manage his own household? Now, if, you're, if you still don't see the connection here, look at verse 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3 in verse 15. What does Paul, guided by the Holy Spirit, call the church? But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. It's in the very same chapter. I think that there's something to be said about that, that God is speaking about the kind of household that a man is supposed to have before you can lead the household of God. And he even says, I want you to know how to conduct yourselves in that household. And so here we have the qualification and the reason for the qualification. And it comes back to that point. Is he experienced in being a scriptural father, being a faithful father, reflecting his heavenly father? Not just reflecting, you know, fathers that you see on TV, which <laughs> that's, that's, that's going to be a scary resemblance if you try to do that. But you're reflecting the Father that you see in the Scriptures. And so with all that being said, this is when you look at the kind of man who's managing his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. These are not going to be kids who are constantly walking around immodestly and getting into trouble. These are going to be kids instead that listen and submit to and respect and obey their Father. And I would just say, whether he's present or not. This is not going to be kids who only mind when the father's around, but kids who show respect even when, again, he's not right in front of them. He's the kind of man who's instilled that kind of reverence and that kind of submission, that kind of dignity. And so to manage God's household, this is the way that a man must lead his own household first. Has he been successful in this area? That's the main question that I want to ask. That's not to say, has he been perfect in this area? But what has he produced in these children? Now, I think this brings up another common question, and that is, do all of his children have to be Christians? Once again, I think we need to be very careful about how we approach the Scriptures and talk about the Scriptures and talk about what God has bound. Over in Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1 in verse 6. He says, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, as he's speaking about these qualifications to Titus. Now, this is the New American Standard translation. You see that in the King James Version, the New King James, the New English Translation, the Legacy Standard Bible, each of those translations have the word translated, the Greek word there translated as faithful. Now, we need to see how this word is used throughout the New Testament to really get an understanding of what God is trying to teach here. And so let's just look at that very quickly. First of all, it is absolutely an identifying word uh, that, is re that regards Christians. In Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10 and verse 45, <clears throat> Acts chapter 10 and verse 20, 45 very quickly, as it's speaking about this story of Cornelius, in Acts chapter 10 and verse 45, this same Greek word is used. It says, all the circumcised believers 
who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. And so that word believers is the same word that we see here in in Titus chapter 1 for believing, those that are faithful. And so this word is used to identify believers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 15, it's used the exact same way, talking about those who are Christians. In Ephesians chapter 1, I think this is one of the best examples. Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Is that pretty clear about what he's talking about? He's talking to Christians. He's not just talking to random people. He's talking to Christians, those who are in Christ. Now, that is one way that this word is used. But there's also another way uh, over in Luke chapter 16 as Jesus is giving this parable of the unjust steward. Luke chapter 16 and verse 10. The same word is used here, Luke 16 in verse 10. It says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing then is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now, once more, this is the parable of the unrighteous steward. Is he a Christian? I don't think so. If he is, he's a very, very poor example of one. This, is, this really is also, uh, and so it, it can be used when talking about Christians, but it also can just be used when speaking about the faithfulness or the loyalty or dependability of one. It doesn't necessarily automatically mean that they're a Christian. Over in, in, the same can be said about Matthew 24 and verse 45, but over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul again speaking to Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 25. <clears throat> he's giving them uh, somewhat of a unique, uh, not commandment necessarily, but he's giving them some advice about their current distress, the current situation they're in, whether they should be married or not. In verse 25, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. And that word for trustworthy there is the same Greek word that we already used for believing children or faithful children. So I wanted to go through just a few examples so that way you could have some in your repertoire. Maybe write them down, look them up, and study them further. But I have to say, when looking at this, this word is used for Christians. It is also used for non-Christians. But I have a question that I think must be answered. When we are talking about men that are capable to leave lead in the household of God. What, what is the parent's first and foremost goal for their children? Is it to be a millionaire? Is it to be you know, graduating high school? Is it to get a college degree? Is it to you know, grow up one day and do the exact same thing that they themselves are doing right now, the same occupation? What is the first goal of every parent? What should be Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, one who leads in the admonition, the instruction, and discipline of the Lord. I really, I really think that we need to struggle with that. They are supposed to be focusing first and foremost on bringing their children to Christ. Now, if a parent can't do that with children, does that not have any bearing on his qualifications? Does that not have any bearing on the conversation of whether or not he can serve as an elder? Now, again, I'm not going to say that I would draw the line of fellowship there. I will just say, and, and you know, this is, this is uh, 
just my two cents. But I think that it does have a lot to say about whether or not he can lead. And I would be very, very careful. And I would want to be very, I think it would be very wise to, to ask questions, ask those kinds of questions and say, you know, at the very least, what happened here? Now, someone may come up and, and, and object to this and say, well, you know, you may have some crazy scenario of, of a kid that they grew up in their parents' household and then they're 50 years old and all of a sudden some calamity strikes and now they're no longer Christian. They just, they become an atheist and, and now they're just completely against God. They don't care about him. They don't, they're not a part of the church. I, I think there's room to talk there. There are going to be all kinds of situations that we have to approach, but again, with wisdom with the scriptures. And when we are talking about a man who we're thinking about leading the church, the household of God, is it not important to ask the question, what happened here? Why, why, it, why aren't all of your children faithful? And just ask some of those questions about how they might have led in the home. And, and I would just... And I would just also add to that, we come up with those kinds of scenarios of the man who's 50 years old and all of a sudden something big happens. But what would you say if one of his kids immediately apostatized or just completely abandoned Christianity right after leaving the home? I think there's something to, 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 to ponder there. I think there's definitely something to consider. And so I'm, I'm not saying this means that a man is a terrible father if not every single one of his kids becomes a Christian. At some point, it is on the child. But it is something that we need to think about when being considered to become a shepherd. Is he a father who has ruled his household well and scripturally? That's what we must consider. And so there are all kinds of questions that we can bring to the table. There's all kinds of discussions that we can have. But don't forget the point. And I think if we keep that point in mind of what God was intending with these qualities, with these qualifications, it would be much easier to traverse these waters of well, what about this? What about this? What about this? Just don't forget the point. And so as we end tonight and we conclude with some of these thoughts, I hope that you didn't leave with more questions than answers. I want to be so very fair with the text. I want to be, I want to do the work of an evangelist and just speak the oracles of God. With that being said, as we speak the oracles of God, we need to make sure that when we do have those questions that will arise inevitably, and when we bring those questions forward, that they are fully thought out. That it's not just, well, the preacher said this. It's not just, well, mom and dad said this. It's not just, well, this is someone that I really trust and they said this. It comes down to what has God said. We all need to be speaking as the oracles of God and making sure that we approach these kinds of questions and conversations very appropriately with wisdom and caution. I want to be like David who, who prays to God. Let me not act with presumption in Psalm 19. Let me not do away with my presumptuous sins. That's how I want to live. Now, when you think about living presumptuously, if you're a Christian and you have not done the things that God has given as qualifications to become a Christian, let me tell you, you're, you're, or, 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 if you are not a Christian and you have not done the things that God has given you, the conditions he's given you to become a Christian, you are living in presumption. You're presuming that you have another day of life to live that you will not, that you may come into contact, that you may enter into judgment before you're ready. And you don't want to live in that kind of presumption. Are you presuming about your relationship with God this very night, whether you're a Christian or not? If you are, you can make things right tonight. If you have 
been in our Bible classes recently, if you've been been here for a couple weeks, you know, because we talk about these things over and over again, what those conditions are that God has given. You need to hear his word. Be willing to hear all of it. Are you willing to repent of the things that he has said a Christian cannot have anything to do with? Are you willing to make a confession based upon that belief? Be faithful in these teachings. That means being not just obedient once or twice, being continually, daily obedient. And being baptized into his death to rise in newness of life. You can have salvation this very night. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.